Hello, and thank you for having me here. I'm going to dispense with a lot of the normal howdy-do's, and I'm going to get right into our lesson because we have way much more material than we're going to be able to cover in each one of these presentations. Uh, for the church here, these lessons are available to you. You're free to post those. These are your outlines. So use those however you want to, carte blanche. Just don't preach it and say it's your stuff. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, I see some others have come in. It's good to see you all. Um, but uh, um, Jesus talked about going into the highways, the byways, and the hedges and compelling people to come in to the great feast that he had prepared. Who's in the highways, byways, and hedges? It's people out there with problems like pornography, drugs and alcohol, crazy lifestyles, legal histories, and other kinds of things. Those are people that are out there in the highways, byways, and hedges. And when we ask them to come in, we need to be ready to talk with them and to have some understanding as to where they're coming from. But at the same time, those in the, who, who have been in the church sometimes have been dabbling in the world. And as a result, they've gotten a pretty good dose of the exposure to the world that has impacted their lives in terms of the subjects we're going to talk about this particular weekend. So I want to start tonight by saying first uh, on the topic of mental health. And I think that was something spoken of in, in the brochure, in the, outline, in the handout. Mental health, the short version of this, mental health breaks down into three categories. The first category is the category of neurosis, people who are neurotic. These are people who are in reality. Anxiety and depression fit in those categories as well as other mood disorders. But these are people that are able to think, who are accountable and responsible because this is about reality, although their behaviors are a little off. That's neurosis. The second category is psychosis. These are people who are not in reality. They may talk about uh, something coming up and, and has bugged the drain in their bathroom or sounds coming out of the commode that people are spying on them. They may uh, think there's a great plot against them somehow. These are people who aren't dealing with reality. Sometimes that's because they have an organic disorder, that is they have an injury or something genetic that has caused their thinking to get off and they're not dealing with, with the real world. Sometimes uh, that is uh, it's because of an injury or sometimes it's because of some genetic thing that's going on. Uh, but whatever the cause, there could be multiple causes, uh, whatever the cause, they don't deal with reality. The third category is the category of addictions. Now, addictions are not just about alcohol and drug, although it includes that. But addictions are about any obsessive compulsive behavior. That may be a person who has a relationship addiction. I'm nobody if I don't have somebody. So I've got to go chase after a boy or chase after a girl until I've got somebody because I can't handle being alone. That may be a relationship addiction. It may be gambling. It may be pornography. 
Uh, it could be a whole lot of, of different kinds of things, but they are obsessed uh, about the thing and they feel this compulsive desire to act on, to act on that obsession. And so that, that is the category that we'll be talking about when we get to addictions. Three categories. Um, so, uh, but tonight I want to focus on two of the uh, two of the things in the neurotic category, and uh, and and um, we'll be spending spending our time on that. And I've asked for a five-minute signal so that it's not doesn't have to be eternal to be immortal. Everybody agree? <laughs> All right. So tonight I want to uh, suggest that we have. And this topic of anxiety and depression, it is rampant in the church. When people come and talk with me on a personal level, and I only, I only deal with members of the church these days, I've really limited my practice, and I have, a, I have a full schedule, and I've got 14 other members of the church that do what I do that we job this out to. Uh, but, but in this, what, what we see is a number of people in the church are dealing with issues of anxiety and depression. And the sad thing about it is many of them feel like that their depression and their anxiety is a sin and therefore they feel like that they have lost the hope of heaven because they have anxiety or because they have a depression that just doesn't seem like it will go away. So our topic tonight is a very pertinent topic. I want to suggest in the first place that every human being at some point in their life, if they live any length of time, is going to have some anxiety. And any human being, if they, if they live any length of time, is going to have some depression. We are not flatline people. We have our highs and we have our lows and we have our moments that make us hold our breath. And we're going to talk about those this, uh, this, uh, this evening. Some depression and anxiety is sin, and that's where the problem is. Because people can take that part which is sin and generalize it and say all of it's sin. But I want to suggest some things to you tonight that maybe will help us with our thinking on that. In the first place, uh, we have Bible characters that tell us, and the first topic I'm going to talk about is depression, then I'll talk about anxiety, and then we'll talk about what to do about both of them. But there's some Bible characters that experienced depressed moments. One of the first of those, and I'm not going to read these verses. They're here before you. And if you want a copy of this, um, uh, talk to someone back there and they can, they can help you with this. Uh, but uh, the first one we talk about is Cain. After Cain killed Abel, Cain was worried. He was even depressed because he thought everybody on earth was going to be out to hunt him down for what he did. And God put a mark on him so that that didn't happen. God intervened to help him with that depression that followed what he did to his brother. That likely had to do with his guilt and his shame over his acting out. So his past behavior threw him into some level of a depression or depressive state. I look at another character in the Old Testament. This man was Moses. And Moses uh, shows signs of depression 
He is weary from helping the people. And uh, Numbers 11, six, uh, 10 through 16 is our verse. But he was weary from judging the people all day. He just got worn out. So what we see with Moses and the kind of depressed, suppressed state that he was in, that that was a result of, uh, of his daily structure and of him being stuck with his job issues and the pressures of his job. And that can create depression, especially when it gets ever and ever increasing. It's like there's no end to it. And there comes in helplessness and hopelessness, two key words with depression, helpless and hopeless. You know, if I've got to do this for the rest of my life, maybe I want to think about whether I want to live the rest of my life. Well, Moses, uh, Moses had some job issues, and he was stuck. Sometimes politics will throw people into depression, especially if you lose. Uh, but it'll throw people in depression. Uh, not getting our own way can throw us in depression. And I think of Jonah when I think of that. Jonah was a man. He didn't want to go tell the uh, people in the capital city uh, that that the people that were going to come and to invade and take, take Israel captive, he didn't want to go tell them to straighten up and repent. He really didn't want to do what he needed, what he was asked to do. So half-heartedly, he put himself into the motion. And you remember the story about the great fish and all that, but I'm not as interested in that tonight as I am in Jonah's politics. And that is, politically, he knew what would happen if God blessed his enemy, that means that we, my people, will be cursed. And so he had some problems with that. And that's why he ran the other way going to Tarshish, which is in Spain, by the way. And, uh, and so as he went out, uh, of course, you remember the story of the fish. And ultimately, he is brought back to the city of Nineveh. And he preaches to them. And lo and behold, they change, much to Jonah's chagrin. Now chapter 4 is my chapter. Because chapter 4, I see a depressed man that is very angry. And I learn about depression from Jonah because depression is anger turned inward. And Jonah goes out here and he sits on a hill. He says, they won't be able to sustain. I'm hoping against hope that they will end up being cursed. And so he's out here waiting for the final, for them to make their shift. But while he's out there, he gets so angry that he passes out. You ever been that angry? But well, he was that angry. And God had some things to say to him that maybe he didn't want to hear. And that is the God of the big picture is also concerned about the little picture. God is concerned about the cattle and about the human lives and about that little picture, not just the politics. But God is interested in the little picture as well as the big picture. And here's the problem. We all live in the little picture. And so we look for those things that will please us. When it doesn't go our way, when we don't have control or feel that we're out of control, when we lose that control, uh, the illusion of the control, then, uh, then we can get into a depression. 
I go to another man, and perhaps he is the central figure in the Old Testament of depression. And this man's name is Elijah. Now, Elijah has done a lot of wonderful things for God that you can have a whole lesson on Elijah. He is a great prophet of God. He is able to withstand during some tough times with Ahab and Jezebel. But Elijah, we see him in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, having a triumphal time on Mount Carmel, and we see him at his best. We see him out here standing up and championing the cause for God against over 400 false prophets, and he's standing them down, and he calls on God to demonstrate his power, and God does. That's the short version of chapter 18, but I'm not interested in chapter 18. I'm interested in chapter 19. In chapter 19, where do I find this man? I'll tell you where I would expect to find him. I would expect to find him out here leading the armies of God and continuing to champion the cause. That was what would, what would have been the natural thing. But that's not where he is. He's out in the wilderness. He is laying under a tree. And he's despairing of his life. And he's scared because there's a bounty on his head. Now, it doesn't matter that bounty had been on his head for three years. But this time it bothers him. This time he re it really gets to him. And I tell you, when I see him out here, what I see is a man who has all the signs of clinical depression. Here's what that means. Here's a man that had deprived himself of food. Here's a man who is out here on a pity pot. I'm the only one left trying to do the right thing. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like you're kind of alone out here? He felt that way. And not only that, but there's this queen coming after me. And she's sworn if she doesn't kill me by tomorrow, and maybe I'd just be better to be dead. That sounds awful close to suicidal, although, although Elijah was not suicidal. But those thoughts come through our head when we are in those dark valleys of depression. And I learned from Elijah how to treat depression. Here's what God didn't tell him. He didn't say, well, Elijah, you just lay here under this tree and I, I got you. And I tell you what, in a little over 2,000 years, there's going to be a little purple pill design, and I'm going to bring you one, and you're going to be okay. We'll just medicate you. God didn't tell him that. But here's what God did tell him. God asked him, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And Elijah answers. Now notice first, God gave him time to do a little R&R, &R, to relax and kind of get his energy back. And then God attacks the cause, which is his thinking. And Elijah says, you know, I'm the only one left trying to do right. And God told him, you know what? My job description has not been posted. I'm still God, and you're not. And besides you, 
There are several thousand that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal, and you're not the only one. And what God was saying is, I can do things, whether it's through you or through someone else, I can cause my will to be done. And then what God said to him is, Elijah, and I'm paraphrasing, you're burnt out. Do you ever get sick and tired of doing stuff over and over and over, same old grind? And God said, it's time for a change. When he had reached this point, God said, There's, you've got to do something different. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and to anoint two kings. One of those is Hazel. I want you to go anoint two kings. I want you to start a college or school. And I want you to educate this young man named Elijah or Elisha. And guess what? Don't get jealous of him because he's going to be better than you. God has a purpose for us when we think we're at the end we may just be at the beginning. It may be we're at some point in our life, it may be in our home life, it may be in, in our job, it might be in different circumstances, it doesn't matter. When the door closes, God always opens another door. You believe that? God does that. And that's what he did with Elijah. Elijah. And Elijah got up from there, and he moved on and on and ever on, and he, and he did not suffer death. He was caught up with the Lord, one of two men who never died. He was, and he reappears again on the Mount of Transfiguration as a hero of faith. But this hero had a bad time. He had a, he had a, a, a horrible bout with depression. But he didn't let it destroy him. Now, David and God didn't let it destroy him. The next one I want to talk about is David. David is a man whose depression is due to sin. And that's why I say some depression is due to sin. David was depressed because Absalom, his son, had driven him out of town and was trying to take over the throne. He was depressed because a child was, was dying. And he, he has the symptoms of depression, grief depression. But in David's case, this was the result of his sin with Bathsheba, even the problem with Solomon, with Absalom. What he had taught Absalom is, you can take anything you want. You're the king. And Absalom decided, well, I want the throne because I'm in the royal family, so I'll just take the throne away from you, Dad. And he drives his dad out of town, and he comes awfully close to doing it. Talk about family problems. Not even to mention Tamar and all that uh, other stuff that's out there. But you see that we got some Bible characters that had issues. Job is a man that when we look at Job, we see that Job has depression. He talks about wanting the, the pit to swallow over him. And when we're reading that, he talks about darkness and, and, and grief. What's going on with Job? When we look at Job, we see, number one, Job has lost his status. Job was a judge in the city. He sat at the gates, and he actually 
pass judgment on whether people needed to stay in the city or be kicked out for particular crimes. He was a judge. And when he got this illness, this sickness, then he had to step down in his status. He was no longer one of those that was looked up to and revered as a judge, at least. And so he lost his standing in his community. But not only that, but we see that he lost his wealth. He had a financial downturn in the stock market crash of the Great Depression. People showed depression. They jumped out of windows, committing suicide, doing all kinds of stuff, depressed people. Job was a man that suffered financial loss in that, do you notice in that first couple chapters that he has these people come to him and and uh, his servants and say, your servants are killed, your animals are killed, uh, and over and over and over. And you know what? If you look at that passage, look at those two chapters, it says, and immediately, one on one on one, bad news after bad news after bad news, that'll depress you. And then of all things, there's a tornado comes through, and his kids, his 10 kids are all together, and this tornado takes out the house where all the kids are and collapses and kills all 10 of them. Do you know the grief that is there when you lose one family member? Yes, we do. We've all had that. But in this case, multiplied times 10. And I have to just let my mind wander because his servants had been killed except for the one that came back to tell him stuff. And I have to wonder, who buried Job's kids? Who dug them out of the rubble? And I don't know the answer to that, but I know who was left. And then of all things, Job gets depressed even more over the loss of friends. Here's friends, not the loss, but the turning of his friends. The people I thought had my back show up, and they don't have my back at all. As a matter of fact, when I'm down, they're kicking me. That's one side of the coin. But let me tell you another side of that same coin is this. That, and we miss this sometimes. When his friends learned that Job had this illness, his friends came, period. His friends did not abandon him during his hours that he was down. Winnie the Pooh has a little friend called Eeyore. <laughs> and I gotta like Eeyore. He's, a, he's the depressed one. He goes around with a cloud of doom and there's nothing good's going to happen. And, well, I guess we better, whatever, however he says that. But I tell you what I learned from Winnie the Pooh is that in all those stories, Winnie the Pooh is always included. They don't let him isolate. And Job's friends didn't do that either. His friends came. When we have people who are down with depression or anxiety or different things, 
We do not abandon each other. Instead, we rally. That's what God's people do. Someone says, well, I don't know what to say to them. I don't know that you have to say anything. Sometimes physical presence, just being there. Sometimes just saying, I'm at a loss to know what to do, but I just want you to know that I'm here by your side. I talked on the way down today with a young lady who's uh, had mountains of issues. And she's got the flu and was just diagnosed with COPD and she was having asthma attacks and all kinds of things. And she was crying to me and she, she said, I may die and nobody will know it for two or three days. And that scares me, I'm so scared. Now her lifestyle had caused her to repel people but nevertheless, it's a horrible feeling to feel alone. And Job out there in his answers back to his Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, in his answers back, he reflects, I am emotionally and mentally isolated from you. What you're saying is not true. I am not a great sinner before God. There's another reason for my suffering. And you know what? So far as I know, and you know, Job never knew. There's nothing to indicate Job understood that this was a trial, that Satan was trying to win an argument with God, and I don't believe Job ever knew. If he did, the Bible doesn't say it. Can you go on with your life when you don't know what's happening in that spiritual world, behind the scenes, that conflict between good and evil, where Satan is the great tempter and God is allowing Satan to, uh, to operate on us, to have us and sift us like wheat? He does that. He did with Peter, didn't he? And we don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but we do know what, what's happening with us. I didn't put this one on here, but Habakkuk would be another example of someone who is depressed. His depression was because he thought God wouldn't do anything. And he, he was mad with God. And he was depressed. And he asked, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? Can't you see the mess we're in? Lord, why don't you help us? And God answers him and says, Habakkuk, I am doing something. I'm doing a work in your day that if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe it. But I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm raising up the Chaldean army to come over there and take your country and your people as slaves. Well, that answered that question. Was God doing something? Yeah. <laughs> But the last chapter there, Habakkuk says, Lord, I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> now what am I supposed to do? And the book ends with Habakkuk says, I will wait on the Lord. Whatever his will is, that's what I'll, I'll wait. And while that happens, I will be like the hind or the deer that runs across the high places. And even though the battle rages below, God is taking care of his planet. God is working as 
with the nations. God is working with the individuals. And what I'll do is step back and I'll be able to say, God's got this. Those are answers to depression. We see other Bible characters. King Saul, for instance. And I learned from King Saul something that will help me with depression. King Saul was out here and uh, he, would he got so depressed, he would send for David. All the more oft because his music soothes my soul. One of the things we do with depression, and we know this, is that high notes on a harp or a flute, those high alpha notes can help a depressed person by causing serotonin to be released in the brain. Those high notes do that. Do you ever wonder why doctors play boring music in their office? Listen to the high notes. Uh, you ever wonder why in guided imagery, which is another thing we do to help people with depression, that in guided imagery, you've got these high, almost Native American flutes and harps and high notes, shrill notes on the piano. It's because what those do is they trigger the body to release its natural relaxants, to be able to cope with life. Well, I learned that from a, from a bad guy. Ahab was so depressed, he was such a wicked guy, he ought to have been depressed. But he was so depressed, all he could do is lay in bed and look at the wall. That sounded like depression to me. Well, his solution wasn't so great. What he did is he got up and he killed a guy so he could take his field. Judas was depressed. And others as well. But I also see in the life of our master times when he was depressed. Not depressed to where he was suicidal or to where no faith was there, but times when he was weary, times when he was troubled in his spirit. And if your Bible says what mine does, he was tempted in all points like as we, I believe that includes that he knew what the shifts in moods were all about. There were sometimes he was so weary he'd stay behind and send his disciples to go get food. There's many verses here that uh, we're not going to go into tonight. But uh, grief over people's rejection of the grace of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him in deep uh, depression because of what he's about to do and anxiety. And he has sweat that breaks out like drops of blood. He is in anguish, the Bible says. Those are words that have to do with depression and anxiety. And then the scourging and the crucifixion. And he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Well, I want to ask the question now, what is depression? And I've got to scurry on because I've just got a few minutes left. But what is depression? Depression is not just a sad mood. It is not just, oh, that really makes me sad. But it is a prolonged sadness about life struggles, setbacks, and disappointments that we face. It's different than sadness because it engulfs our life day by day. It's like a shadow that is cast upon everything. 
and it interferes with a person's ability to work, to study, to eat, to sleep, and even to have fun. The feelings of helplessness and hopelessness are paramount to, and worthlessness are paramount to, depressed, to depression. We're going to see some common signs, such as loss of energy, loss of appetite, sleep cha changes in our sleep patterns. Uh, we can't sleep or we oversleep. Uh, anger, anger or irritability. In men, what we see is these signs, but men tend to go out and to work harder, pour themselves into more work. They run from it. Women tend to kind of want to curl up in a ball. It's a difference in the two. Now, that's not true with all people, but it is with enough that we can say that. Loss of energy, self-loathing, reckless behavior, unexplained aches and pains. Our body just is telling us something. I'm going to zip through some of this. In teenagers, and by the way, we are seeing more and more teens with anxiety disorders and, uh, and depressive disorders. And I really believe that there is a direct causal link with that and the time that is spent in digital world, in gaming, and, uh, and out here in a cyberspace, a false world, a world that's not about reality, where we can't develop as a social being, as a human being. Instead, we're almost, almost like an avatar kind of person that we live out here in a fake world. And as a result of a lot of that, and by the way, that will be listed in the next manual as a mental disorder, to get caught up in that as an addiction. But let me move on. Well, depression in teens, sometimes teens may appear to be very sad. The grades may go down. Maybe a lot of anger and wrath, an overreaction to criticism. Um, Maybe uh, uh, physical acting out, sexual acting out, and suicidal thoughts. And, uh, and, uh, or they may turn to other kinds of things like self-medicating. All right, we see those, those signs and symptoms in teens. I would add to all these tunnel vision. In other words, I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. What I see is only gloom and darkness ahead. Let me talk a moment about suicide, and then I'm going to go to, uh, go to, um, to um, anxiety. I was in one place, and I was speaking on depression, and several people came out, members of the church, and they said, well, I've been diagnosed with depression. Like, okay. And then more came out, and they said the same thing. And by the time it was done, a congregation, maybe 150, 200, I didn't count them up, but later on I went back over it, and my guesstimate would be between 30 and 40 people came out and said they'd been diagnosed with depression. And I thought, what are the doctors around here telling people? And I learned something. I went to my doctor. And I told my doctors, I, I, well, she wasn't my doctor then, the first time I went. And here's what I got. 
what's your name? That was the questionnaire. What's your name? Let's verify your name and your, your uh, demographics. And what brings you in today? Well, I'm tired. I just don't have any energy. And the third thing she told me was, I'm going to start you on an antidepressant. And I said, no, you aren't. I said, you don't know who I am. And I diagnosed depression. And this isn't depression. You know, she checked my blood and I had an A1C of 14. If you don't know about A1C, that should have put me near the emergency room. That's what the problem was. But she was going to treat me with an antidepressant. And I told her, I said, you know what? You're the doctor, but I'm the expert on me. And I know this isn't that. Well, anyway, I'm not on an antidepressant. Did you know there's nine kinds of depression? And they are not all treated the same way, but most doctors will not, most people in the professional world will not tell you because they may or may not know there's nine kinds of depression. And you don't treat them all the same way. Usually when people talk about depression, they're talking about major depression. And that is usually treated with a with a medication. But here's what I want you to hear from me. First is, if you're on one, don't stop taking it. But I also want you to hear that a pill is not a skill. A pill can take you there until we talk you there. Now, I got enlightened with a doctor that came and listened uh, and, and saw me. And I asked him, Actually, I didn't want him to come see me because I thought it was a waste of his time, and he agreed. But, uh, but so I said, well, why are you here? Let me, make, let me make good use of our time. And I want to know, antidepressants, how long are they good? I said, I've heard something that I just need you to validate, and I'm not going to tell you what I heard. How long are they good? And what he said is, when you first start taking them, there is an immediate reuptake. But the longer you take them, the less the reuptake is. I said, so if I take these for a lifetime or for a long period of time, after a while, I'm just taking a placebo. He said, that's right. Now, I'm not going to tell you to stop taking your medication, but I am going to tell you, you need med checks. And you need to have that evaluated if you're on medications. A pill is not a skill. Well, there are different kinds. Major depression. Dystymia is the one we see the most. Dystymia is just a generalized sadness. And I see that amongst a lot of Christians. And as I see that, I think these folks have lost their hope. And when I talk with them about, are you going to go to heaven? You know what they tell me? I hope so. And what I tell them is, you mean to tell me that on the judgment day, when and if the Lord calls your name, you're going to say, me? Really? Do I get to go? And it's a surprise. 
Paul said, I know there's a crown of life laid up for me, and not just for me, but to you too. And a lot of Christians don't know that. Shame on us. I don't live the life I did, that I live to see if I get surprised on the judgment day. I live the life I live, and you need to live the life you live in faith and in hope that God will do what God said He would do, and I believe and trust His promise. Do you? Postpartum depression, we know that has to do with the delivery of a child and the after effect as the hormones readjust. That's treated with medication. Seasonal affective disorder, otherwise known as SAD, is during this time of year when we don't have as much sunlight. Or during summertime when we stay inside all the time. People were not meant to huddle inside. You read your Bible, and you got a lot of folks outside. And they're outside doing stuff. They're not hiding in the house. Well, atypical depression is a depression that displays itself like the funny little clown who's laughing on the outside and dying on the inside. That's the funny little clown. Then we have depression that crosses that line into psychotic. Bipolar depression, which is manic depression. And then we see a premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is like PMS times 10, and is often misdiagnosed for a bad uh, cycle that month, or for someone that has trouble uh, with their cycle for a female. And then there's situational depression. Situational depression has to do with, I got some bad news. I think Jacob was an example of that. When he thought Joseph was dead for 17 years, or for 13 years, he thought he was dead, only to find out one day that he was standing in front of his son who was not dead. He was second in command to Pharaoh. And God had blessed him all that time, but Jacob didn't know it. And his response was as if it had been real. Sometimes depression is because we have accepted something that's not true. Well, there are several risk factors that I'm not going to go into tonight. Here's how we, here's how we address this. The first thing we need to look at is what is the person thinking? Elijah wasn't thinking the right thing. So, Challenge those negative thoughts. We call those cognitive distortions. Write these things down and put it on a piece of paper. Go over that with somebody or look at it and say, well, you know, this isn't true. Look at it. Examine it. Next thing I would suggest is create an anxiety and worry-free space. Take a break from your worry and anxiety. And that may be even mentally, where we say, you know what? I'm going to picture a banker's box, and I'm going to put my worries and anxieties in this banker's box. I'm going to put it on a shelf in my mind, and I'm going to get on with my life, the things I need to do. I'm not going to let that hinder me. 
And then I can come back to that later on, and in my mind, I can take that box down and look at it. Or I may actually do that in a literal way. Accept the things I cannot change. Control is an illusion. We're not even in control of ourselves. And if you think you are, then tell me what you're going to be doing a minute from now. You don't know the answer to that. Because we're only a breath away from the Lord. We're only someone charging through the door from a bad time in our assembly. You don't know what's going to happen to you even a minute. Now what makes you think you can control not only your life, but somebody else's? Control is an illusion. Control is God's. He's in charge. And I need to trust that He will do the right thing. And then take care of yourself. Relaxation. One of the things that I tell people that they need to do is learn how to breathe. Now, I spend a lot of time, people pay me good money to teach them how to breathe. <laughs> and I take their money. Uh, but, but, do you know when we get depressed and anxious that we kind of stop breathing? Our breathing gets shallow. Well, what else happens when your breathing gets shallow? You don't get the oxygen to your blood. Your system slugs down. And so we learn how to take in five deep breaths. I'm not going to do that with you. But take in five deep breaths, one at a time. Take in a breath all the way. Fill your lungs all the way. And then let it out all the way. Yeah. And do that about five times. If you have an anxious moment, if you do that five-step little exercise, you'll find that something changes in you. And here's what changes, is that you have oxygenated your blood and the stuff that needs to be happening in your body starts happening. Well, practice that. Practice, where do you hold your stress? I happen to ho hold mine in my shoulders. Some people hold it in their jaws. Some people tighten their legs or, or their rear. And when they do that, what they experience is that it's a, the body cannot relax. We go to sleep at night, we curl up in a ball, in a fetal position, and every muscle in our body is tight. You can't relax like that. You can't get good sleep like that. Because your body's still overworking. And that's where we take that inventory of our body and we learn how to let go and relax, and we tell ourselves, God's got this. It's okay to doze off to sleep. Not here, though. <laughs> Y'all stay awake. All right. Uh, adopt good eating habits. When people have anxiety and depression, they usually have some pretty poor habits, either to where they over or under eat, or eat junk that's not going to give them uh, the, the stuff they need. Exercise regularly. Now, when a person is depressed, the last thing they want to do is get up and jump around. But that's the very thing they need to do. And here's why. On these nine kinds of, of uh, depressions, that one of the treatments for those is aerobic type exercises. Get up, move around, get yourself, get your heart pumping. 
break a little sweat, do that for 15, 20 minutes, and guess what? Aerobic type exercise in the clinical trials is as effective as an antidepressant. Get up and move around. Don't isolate. Keep your network of friends around you. Even if you don't want to go out with them, go out with them anyway. And what will happen is, oh, it may not lift immediately, but it will start lifting because you continue your activities. Now, suicide, unfortunately, we have this in our brotherhood. Heard of a preacher the other day that had suicided. And we have this in our brotherhood. So we have to be very, very aware of the signs and symptoms. Uh, and these would be some of those. A uh, person is taking high risks. They're self-mutilating. Maybe they're cutting themselves. Um, or they're making statements, I don't know what the purpose of going on is. Take that seriously. Now, I'm not going to have time tonight, uh, at least at this point, to talk about anxiety. But anxiety travels with depression. And there is a link between the two. They often go hand in hand. And one of the writers of the Old Testament, one of the Psalms, says they go hand in hand. If someone asks me a question about anxiety, I can go on with this. Uh -huh. But for right now, our time is up. So right now, our time is up. We're not going to do an invitation, uh, and I'm going to turn it over to our brother here. As I said, if you have some written questions you'd like to have answered, we'll take those up in just a second. But I want to point out, uh, Mark has said that we have access to these slides. So if you'll give me or one of the other elders and members here your email address and the session make sure you get a copy of those slides for you to review, including the ones perhaps we didn't get to go over tonight. All right, are there any questions that anybody has that they want to get answered? Got one? And I'm going to go ahead and ask. Right. Tell me about anxiety. <laughs> we have until 15 after. We have until 15 after. And this one is, what is the best way we can help someone who is depressed? This was in the last part. Um, the be Well, what I would think is the best way is, first is, is the person depressed? Second is, if we can understand what's causing the depression or why are you depressed? If they're depressed because someone died, you're not going to be able to make that go away. That's something you have to work through. If they're depressed because they lost a job and can't find another one, then what you can do is help them to get their resume together, to go look for jobs. Some people had not looked for jobs in a long time. And so how do I go about doing that? I got one gentleman that calls me every day at 10 o'clock. That's his time. And I want him to check in with me every day because he doesn't think anybody wants to hire him. He has a master's degree uh, in technology, and he didn't think that he is marketable. 
So he's gone back to flipping hamburgers, which is what he did before he went to college. Well, I'm working with him every day and giving him assignments. So I'm staying with him. I'm staying on him. I'm, right, I'm walking with him. And that's one of the things you can do with depressed people is to walk along beside of them, to help them, to encourage them. What you don't do is say, you just need to snap out of it. That's probably the worst thing you can tell a person because the, almost their immediate response is, do you think I want to be this way? And so you're going to have a battle on your hands, but you're also going to have someone that's going to say, you don't get it. By the way, I need to say this. Some medications, not just antidepressants, but some medications, if you will read your PDR, you know that long little thing that's so finely printed you can't read it? There's a book called a PDR book, and you read that. Um, or get you a magnifying glass. But what you will see is some of our medications, the side effects are depression or anxiety or other things. And so, so you want to look at what, what are the causes. That's the first thing. Second thing we want to do is, is, to, uh, is to develop an action plan. Now, I know in Elijah's case, the action plan was you need to rest and you need to eat. You need to basically get your sleep and, your, and eat. And then you need some challenges. And his challenges were to get up and do what we, what we talked about. But the one thing that he wasn't allowed to do is to sit there and feel sorry for himself. Challenge them to do the very thing they don't want to do. And walk along beside them. Physical exercise may be, hey, let's go out and walk. If you walk slow, that's all right. I'll walk with you. But you don't leave them alone. Also, teach them about the power of mantras. Mantras are those things that we are telling ourselves. Now, we are scripted from the time we are born into a family almost. And those scripts play in our mind. I'm a loser. I can't do anything right. Everything always goes wrong for me. Other people are successful, but I never will be. And those are just things we've heard over time and collected, and we play them in the committee in our head, and they help to put us in moods. So the question is, what are you telling yourself? And even more so, what should you be telling yourself? I have a few mantras I use. They're, they're biblical ones. Uh, the one is, get thee behind me, Satan. I think sometimes Satan gets so close to me I can almost see him. And it's like, get out of here. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I see what you're doing. Get out of here. What are you doing in my life? I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Those are mantras. So we replace, we replace the negative thoughts with positive thoughts. 
Let me get to some more of these. There's a whole bunch of things, and, and uh, I've got some of those up here, but I'm not going to go into all those tonight. But there are a whole bunch of things we can do for this. Is ECT uh, ex an acceptable option for depression? Is it effective? Is there a downside to ECT? That's when you actually destroy part of the brain. You hook people up. Uh, Jack Nicholson, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That was, uh, that was an early form of ECT, which happened to be a lobotomy. Um, I'm not a fan of ECT. I have worked with people that have had ECT, and then when they need to call up something that is a memory that is blocking, their, blocking them from getting the help they need, that memory is not there. And so we have to do a workaround. And that's difficult to deal with something that's not there. There's gaps that are caused by the, by the uh, electrical shock. Yes, sir. Electroconvulsive therapy. Okay. All right. Um, that's the downside. Can it be effective? Some people say it is. They say it helped them. But I'm not particularly a fan of it. And I don't know that the research uh, supports uh, in all cases that it's, a, that it's a helpful thing. In some cases, maybe with horrible uh, post-traumatic stress, maybe it's effective. Um, but there are other ways to deal with it. What's the long-term effect for taking serotonin or an antidepressant? Doctors say they are safe. Okay. They probably are. Um, the way that you're going to find the answer to that is to go to, um, to the, um, to the uh, medical journals, and it, they're going to cite studies. The thing is that you can cite studies both ways, that they are effective in the long run and they're not effective in the long run. The ones I've talked to, and my conclusion on that, is that antidepressants uh, are not as effective in the long run as they are in the short run. There may be some, some advantage to them, um, but again, that's medical, and I'm not medical. Uh, what's the meaning of anxiety and depression? Does it, do they stem from the same biological vulnerability? They can. They often travel together. Anxiety, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but anxiety is about engaging your sympathetic nervous system, that flight or fight or freeze. And it's about it getting stuck, like your accelerator on your car gets stuck, or like a brake would get stuck. And here's how it gets stuck. Is people that experience uh, levels of anxiety, that fight, flight, or freeze, that often, as they experience this, they are responding to something that's not real. Your body doesn't know if it's been triggered to respond to something real or something imagined. Your body doesn't know. 
So what you're telling your brain is really important. If I tell my brain there's somebody behind me with a gun that's going to shoot me, and I truly believe that, I'm going to respond like that. I may duck and hit the floor. You know, I may go running out the building, playing dodge bullets to something that's not real. My body is responding normally, but I'm not telling it the right information. On the other hand, if that was real, that would be a real response. So anxiety is about, look at the word fear, it's about false evidence that appears real. The lady told me she thought she had poisoned and killed her grandchild. And she called me frantically and told me, I think I killed my grandbaby. Well, that got my attention. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, my grandchild was born the other day and I cooked some chicken, a casserole, and put some saran wrap over it and took it over there for him to eat. And I think they ate it and my daughter is nursing the baby but I'm not sure the saran wrap covered the edge of the bowl. And I've lost sleep for three days because if it didn't, then I may have given salmonella to my daughter and to my new grandchild that may die. And she'd lost sleep for three days about that. Well, my first response was, have you talked to your daughter? Have you asked her, how was the casserole? Have you, did you ask, was it covered all the way when it got over there? You see, some, that's obsession. That's obsession. And it had created high anxiety for her. But it wasn't real. It didn't happen. Nobody died of salmonella, by the way. Anxiety can stem from a lot of things. But some of the core or some of the roots of anxiety have to do with what we have been told as kids. Kids that grow up in homes where they are constantly criticized are going to have some problems with anxiety as they grow up. I talked to a young Christian lady the other day that told me she grew up in a home where she was constantly reminded that she was evil. That was said to her. You're evil. There you go being evil again. You're just a spawn of the devil. And this teenager grew up with those thoughts in her head. And guess what plays today? High anxiety. I have to do it right. It has to be perfect. If I miss a point on a test and don't get 100, then I go into... My stomach just gets tight and I have stomach cramps because my whole body system wants to show. I'm full of anxiety because if I don't get 100, I'm not a good person. See how those cognitive things start kicking? <coughs> but they're all based on a thought. 
And the message is you're not a, child, a spawn of the devil. You're not evil. <coughs> you're a child of God. But a lot of damage can be done by giving bad messages to young people. All right, let me keep going. All right. <coughs> Question. What's a technique when you feel stuck on a thought or a concept? That's a good message, a good question. Sometimes we get caught in the spin cycle. Anybody do that? Okay, I do that sometimes. Caught in the spin cycle. When I'm stuck on something, what I usually do and usually recommend is you need to write down what's bothering you. And then you need to step away from it for a minute. Go do the laundry, go down the street and do a little shopping or whatever, and then come back to it. What will happen is that will be in the back of your head, but it won't be in the front of your head, where it's not your major thought. Because when we're stuck in the spin cycle, we're not getting our daily stuff done. And we're getting behind in stuff. And that's building more anxiety. Stuck in a thought could give birth to OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Anybody see as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson? You know, you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. So we got to dodge, we can't do that because we've been told if I step on a crack, my mother's back will break. So I can't be doing that. So we got these little things we do, rituals we do. Anybody ever leave home and go back see if you shut the garage door or see if you did whatever you need to do at home? Anybody ever go back again after that? Anybody challenge himself after the third time and say, you know what, I'm not sure I really had my focus on that. Let me check it again. Now, if you're working in a nuclear factory, I want you to do that. <laughs> But you're not, I don't think. And so, obsessive thoughts are often because we don't trust ourselves. In our mind, somewhere, we have this message, I can't do it right, I'm going to goof it up, and if I do, somebody's going to find out about it, and they'll think I'm a bad person, and then they won't want me in their circle of friends. See how we chase thoughts? So to get out of the spin cycle, we write it down, leave it where it is, go off and come back to it at a different time. That'll help you with a spin cycle. Or what we may do is actually face the fear. There's a lady one time that she uh, just knew her obsessive thought was that if she went shopping in the mall, she would have some kind of a panic attack and then everybody in the mall would stare at her and they would call the paramedics, they would rush in and take her and then she'd have to explain what happened and then somebody would call her family and then keep going on and on and on. And I challenged her and I said, I'll tell you what we need to do. In your next session, we're going to go to the mall. And she almost had a panic attack. 
I said, I'm going to go with you. And what I want you to do is go to the mall. And she says, well, I'm just afraid. I'm afraid when I get there, I'll get all shaky and, and I'll lose my mind. I'll, I'll go crazy. And I said, well, can you show me what, it looks, what a crazy person looks like? So when you do that, I'll know. And she raised her hands and did some weird thing. And I said, so that's how I would know you're crazy. Well, if I did that, would I be crazy? She wasn't sure about that, I guess. But anyway, we went to the mall. And guess what? We got to the mall. And she had avoided that for a long time. She had a social phobia, which is part of anxiety. And she ended up realizing that not everybody was looking at her. Duh. And realizing that even if she acted crazy, that folks wouldn't be looking at her. And you know what I asked her to do? I said, I want you in this mall to act like you're crazy, just like you did in my office. And she happened to be just a little smart, and she said, you first. <laughs> so I did. Now, you know what? A few folks looked at, well, what's going on there? But the world didn't stop, and the paramedics didn't come, and all that chain of stuff that was going to happen, it didn't happen. And guess what? When we busted her thoughts, then she was able to get better. She can shop. The fact is, her husband thinks she shops too much now. All right. We're close to ending time. There's a lot more information on these PowerPoints on anxiety. But I've covered some of the highlights, false evidence that appears real. And, uh, and the anxiety disorders and the depressive disorders, they travel together. And anti-anxiety pills can help, medication can help. But it's not going to necessarily cure it. It will merely treat the symptom. Okay, there's a lot more we need to say. By the way, the short version of what I just said with chasing thoughts is the problem with folks that have anxiety disorders is they have an ant problem. Ants, A-N-T-S, ants. You know what ants are? Automatic negative thoughts. And you'll see that when you talk to people. And you'll make a suggestion, well, I don't think that'll work because. And they're putting it down all, you know, they, they are getting it figured out before it ever happens. And guess what? Not much happens in their life. And then they wonder why life's leaving them. And a lot of times it's because they have those automatic negative thoughts. But for every ant, there's an ant colony. And that takes us to a whole other area. But that ant colony is all the garbage that people have collected through the years that gets triggered in our anxious moments. All right. The short version of that is there's PowerPoints. And if you need more PowerPoints or you, or you need more material on this, our website, leavingthepitbehind.org. This one is not the correct email leavingthepitbehind.org. Uh, there's six or eight hours on each of these subjects out there.
Thank you so much. Thank you, Art. It's certainly been good to be here and to hear these things and to get a perspective that you might not get from your average professional. And Art is a professional counselor and uh, in addition to being a preacher. We're very thankful he was able to be here and the many visitors that are here this evening, we're also thankful for you being here. Uh, we're going to see if there are some of these things we can uh, post on our website or on our Facebook page. We'll talk with Art about that. Again, if you uh, heard what he said, leavingthepit.org, or is it leavingthepitbehind.org? Leavingthepit. Leaving the pit dot <laughs> Have we all got it straight yet? Leavingthepitbehind.org, and I've been on that website. If there's nothing else, we'll ask Tim Frazier to close us with prayer.